0: All right. While well, everybody is uh, finding their seat. Let me just uh, review announcements. First of all, we did have a really successful vacation Bible school this week. Mark Friedrich and his his wife and his daughter, Allison, just did an incredible job. Uh, Allison, I was in here a couple of days, and she just did an awesome job with the uh, leading the singing and doing some other things, and, and everybody did a great, great job. And... Uh, uh, we had about 21 to 25 kids that showed up, which is a good deal more than last year. So it was just just exceptional, and uh, everybody who was involved deserves uh, great congratulations for, for a job well done. Also, an announcement about a financial need for Camp Arete. They're running a little bit short, about $5,500, and be in prayer for that. And I think that, oh, yeah, and this Friday, or excuse me, Saturday morning, day after tomorrow, we're going to have our men's prayer breakfast. You you cooking? (laughs) Is it an option? (laughs) Is it an option? Not anymore. (laughs) So, um, but I encourage uh, Rick Miller is going to come by and uh, talk a little bit about what's going on in terms of state politics and maybe a few other things. Uh, he's a state representative from down in the uh, Richmond or Sugarland area. so um, that'll be good uh, <clears throat> make try to make a plan to be here for that. I think that's and then the deacons' meeting is at nine o'clock. I think that pretty much takes care of all the all the things that are that are coming up. So trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. And all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. The emphasis, again, we're going to see tonight. We just see this again and again in Scripture. There's always people who say, well, you know, 1 John 1, 9, why do you always confess your sin? The key word isn't confess. The key word's cleanse. And again and again in Scripture, we see this issue illustrated in the Old Testament in ritual, emphasized in the New Testament the importance of cleansing from sin after, even after salvation. So I will be looking at that again. So we need to have a few moments of silent prayer, and then uh, I will... For you to use 1 John 1, of course, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful we had this time to come together to focus on your word, focus on you, be reminded of who you are and who we are. Father, it's your word that it has power, as Isaiah said in the Old Testament. And, Father, we know that it is through your word that we are transformed. As our Lord prayed, it is through the word of God and the spirit of God that we are cleansed and that we are sanctified and that we grow spiritually. Father, we understand that our mission is to be transformed not to be conformed to the world, but to be uh, conformed to the image of your Son. That is our destiny, as stated in Romans 8, uh, 29, and that we do that through the means you have also decreed, which is through your Word and your Spirit. Father, we pray that tonight as we study that this will be used by God the Holy Spirit in our spiritual growth, our edification, strengthening us and reminding us of the important truths of Scripture. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles to First Peter chapter one. Now, last time, as we were looking at these verses, and these are not simple verses. And as I've said from the beginning of our study here in First Peter, one of the problems that we have in First Peter is we tend, as as American evangelicals, to put a certain set of glasses on when we start studying the Bible, and that set of glasses is really defined by a vocabulary set, where words like save and, and faith uh, focus on getting justified rather than on spiritual growth. But both of these words are used, and other words are used sometimes of justification and sometimes related to spiritual life and spiritual growth. But we put this set of glasses on so that every time we see the word justified or are saved or faith or uh, sanctified, cleansed, we think immediately of phase one or of phase two. And Sometimes it's not that way. And so we get a <clears throat> we misunderstand scripture. And this is especially true of epistles like James and first Peter and second Peter. Now, if we're talking about James and 1 Peter, what do these two books have in common, these two epistles? They're both written to a Jewish background Christian audience, and and that's another issue that we're going to have to resurrect and go back and study some more when we get into chapter 2. That makes it a little uh, convoluted, and it's also, uh, if you don't dot your i's and cross your t's correctly, you lay the groundwork for uh, replacement theology in the second chapter of of, uh, Peter. And we're also going to see a verse on Sunday morning that in Matthew, which is a foundational verse for, for people who hold to replacement theology, but we'll get there in due time. So what we wanted to do was give you a little illustration to think about Here I've got the pictures from two different jigsaw puzzles, both of which have to do with ocean life. And you can see a lot of similarity between those two uh, puzzles, between those two pictures. And if you had, if you're sitting at a table and you had the pieces for both of those puzzles dumped out on the table in front of you, then you would think that when you saw certain colors, especially blue, in front of you that, well, you might think that that goes into puzzle the one on top and actually fits in the one below. But it could be the, an identically cut piece, so it's almost interchangeable between the two. But what tells you what that piece means is the context around it. And that's what we find in talking about These words. So if you think of those pieces as appearing to be interchangeable, but they really aren't, that's the same thing when you're talking about words like faith and sanctify and consecrated and um, believe and saved, is that those words in and of themselves can mean uh, two or three different things, and it's the context that surrounds it that tells you what it means. And you can't jump to conclusions about those. Uh, those particular words. And the way you can identify a particular piece as to which which way it goes is by looking at the overall box top, the picture of that, that jigsaw puzzle. That informs the meaning of the parts. That's why it's important at times to sit down and do an overview of the whole epistle and understand that if Peter or Paul or James are talking about in the whole epistle growing, maturing, going through the process of spiritual growth, dealing with trials and tribulation, which both James and 1 Peter have in common, that when you get to these passages in the context that are talking about faith and salvation and cleansing, that if the topic in the whole epistle is phase two and not phase one, if it's spiritual growth and not how to have eternal life, then you have to interpret those words in terms of spiritual growth rather than how to have uh, eternal life. And even though everything may, t- may look, when you just look at that verse in isolation, that, yes, yeah, sure, it can mean uh, and could be used to mean how to get to heaven. Classic example, Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. How many times have you and I used that verse in a gospel presentation? But if we look at the text and the context... Paul has moved way beyond talking about justification that's chapters 3 and chapter 4 and part of chapter 5 starting in 6 through 8 he's only talking about the spiritual life. And what he's talking about in Romans 6 6:23 is that the wages of sin for the believer is is death. Not eternal spiritual death, but carnal death. He's going to be out of fellowship. But the but through salvation we i mean through through spiritual growth we have we can have eternal life which is not talking about getting saved spending eternity in heaven but having the full experience right now of that full rich abundant life that Jesus has for us so because people jump to these conclusions that oh the wages of sin is death That's got, sin death that's got to be and it could mean that That meaning fits. If all you have is that verse, it looks like it could mean that. Why not? Because that isn't what it says. That isn't what Paul intended. That wasn't the intent of the Holy Spirit or Paul. And you're taking something out of context that is talking about one thing and you're making it apply to another. That's mishandling the Word of God. And I don't care what your justification is, nothing justifies mishandling the Word of God. That's why we spend so much time going over these things in Bible class. So, having said that, I want to go back over and just pick up the flow of what Peter is saying here in these verses, uh, starting in verse 20. And remember, verse 20 is in the Greek is not a new sentence. It's a continuation of the sentence before. And verse 18 and 19 is actually a continuation of a sentence that uh, begins back in in uh, in verse 17. That all relates to that command to conduct yourselves during your stay here in fear. Now he gives a reason for that command. In fact, it's interesting. There are more imperatives. How many commandments are there in the in the Torah? Six hundred thirteen. That's the law. People never understand legalism. They say, we, we live in the age of grace. We're not under law. There are probably five times as many imperatival verbs and phrases in the New Testament in the sections of the epistles for the church age than 613, which means we are expected to obey those commands. That's not legalism. Legalism is not the idea that I need to and am expected to and am commanded to live and think a certain way in the Christian life. Legalism is the idea that because I do that, that's the basis for God blessing me. Legalism is the idea that if I'm doing that, and I then I become judgmental of others who aren't doing that. That's legalism. So legalism is not the idea that there are mandates that we are supposed to obey. That's not legalism. Legalism is doing it out of arrogance and thinking that that's the foundation for, uh, for all of our spiritual blessing, when the reason we're blessed is because we possess the perfect righteousness of Christ. So we have to carefully look at these uh, pictures, the overview, the themes of Scripture to understand, the themes of a book to understand how the individual words and parts fit together. So we looked at 120, which continues that main thought, still relating to the idea of conduct yourselves throughout time, your time here in fear. Why? Because of something, because you know that you are not redeemed with corruptible things. The motivation for the spiritual life is understanding the height and breadth and depth and width of the redemptive work of Christ on the cross. That motivates us to respond to God's grace through obedience. And it ends by talking about Christ, and then Peter adds something to that in relation to Christ, that he has been known before the foundation of the world. This is sort of a a cleaner paraphrase that I put together here, that he was known before the foundation of the world and was was manifest in these last times for you who through him believe in God. Now, the interesting thing here, we have to look at this in a minute, is you, you've got to ask some questions there, and I'll get there in just a second. But we have to look at this meaning of the word known. I've got a couple of questions. Let's just summarize it quickly. What does foreknowledge mean? This is a definition I quoted from the New International Dictionary of New Testament Theology that it has that basic idea of predicting or knowing the future. It's knowing ahead of time what will happen. And so the writer of that article said the corresponding noun, prognosis, uh, Tested as a medical term. We use it all the time. When you go to a doctor, you say, what's my prognosis? What what is going to happen? And he says, this denotes foreknowledge, which makes it possible to predict the future. It's knowing ahead of time what's going to happen. So I said last time, foreknowledge means to know something ahead of time. It is prescience. Thus, foreknowledge is a subcategory of God's omniscience, which means God knows all the knowable. Now, the other term that is confusing for people is the one that it's often foreknowledge is often associated with. It's often translated for ordination or even uh, pre- predestination, and we have the word th- those two words together in Romans 8:29. But there we see that foreknowledge is the basis for predestination for so first god knows what's going to happen ahead of time and then to those people he sets a destiny for them so predestination means to determine a destiny but the destiny in romans 8:28 and 29 isn't heaven or hell it's not the it, it's not with the father or in the lake of fire the destiny is defined in romans 8:29 As for those who are justified, they are to be conformed to the image of Christ. That's what God is doing for all of us. That's his plan for us. Now, some of us resist that. Some people resist it to a tremendous amount. But the plan that God has for every believer is to bring us into conformity with the character of of God's Son. So here's an expanded paraphrase verse verse 20 God knew him that's Christ as we just mentioned ransom or redeemed he's the redeemer God knew him as your ransom long before the creation of the universe but he was manifest in these last times for you That's that's the idea that this plan of God it's the same thing we see in and and um in Acts chapter two, in Peter's speech, is that God has a plan, and this was set before the creation of the universe, and it's manifested. It says in these last times, and I pointed this out last time. This was a blinding flash of the obvious for some of you. We're in the last days, not because we see the quote signs of the times, and uh, even though Hal Lindsey's book has sold a lot of copies, and God's used it to. Uh, bring a lot of people to salvation. Uh, he's wrong and so are so many other prophecy uh, prophecy people that, that popularize prophecy and talk about we're in the last days. There's two ways in which that term is used. One has to do with the last days of the church. The other has to do with the last days of Israel. And the last days of Israel don't occur until you're in the tribulation. The last days of the church actually began with the with the ascension of Christ and the uh, birth of the church on the day of Pentecost. We've been in the last days since the ascension of Christ. You have passages like 2 Timothy 3, one, but know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. Now you may think, well, that's talking about the future, but if you'd read the context, he's talking about things that are currently happening in Ephesus, see, he's writing, Paul's writing to Timothy who's pastoring the church in Ephesus. In Hebrews 1, 2, talking about what Christ has done, says that he has in these last days, these last days, that was written in about 65 A.D. So in these last days, so, so the early apostolic period was in these last days. 1 John 2, 8 says, little children, it's the last hour. Now he's writing probably closer to 90, but he says we're in the last hour. That was more than a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> so we're definitely in, in this, have been in the last days ever since uh, the beginning of the church age. So now as we go forward, we need to understand that, that there's, that unfortunately, in a couple, several places here, the, the second chapter break is really in a bad spot, and the verse break at the... Uh, end of verse 20 to 21 is really bad because it's a continuation. And so that's why I've put this together on this slide to try to make that clear. The last two words in verse 21 uh, continue. uh, He was manifest in these last times for you who... Okay, it goes on. It says it manifests in these last times for you who through him believe in God. So that whole phrase... Needs to be taken, uh, taken together, and what we see is the Greek here that's translated for you, is a preposition dia, and it takes a, it, a dia can either have a genitive noun following it or an accusative, and they're going to mean different things. So if you have a genitive, it means through, like for by grace we are saved through faith. It indicates means or instrumentality. But when you have an accusative case noun, it indicates because of something or on account of something or for your sake. So we translate that. He as manifest in these last times for your sake, on account of you, or because of you, for you. That's the believers in the church age. And then um, we have it another time in this same passage. Through him is the dia plus the genitive construction, and that indicates uh, instrumentality or or means. So he was manifest because of us or for our sake. Who? That's going to define the you a little more. Through him, that is through the Lord Jesus Christ, believe. Then we get in that, and that's the translation that we have here in the in, uh, in the English New King James. And a lot of translations translate this "believe," but that raises a conundrum: Are we saved by believing in God? Now you'll hear a lot of people say that. Well, I believe in God, so I'm going to go to heaven. But is that what the Bible teaches? The Bible does the Bible teach that belief in God is the the way we get to heaven? not at all. It talks about we have to believe in Jesus. And that's real clear from the Gospel of John. We have a similar construction. The verb is pistevo or pistuo, depending on your pronunciation scheme. And then it's the preposition ace, which is the same preposition we have here. But we don't have the verb here. We have a noun here. And the way it's translated into English, it's translated as if it's a verb who through him believe, but it's not a verb in the original Greek, and it is a noun, and we have to understand the distinction between these two nouns. They're both based off of the same root. The first noun is the word pistos, and the second noun is the word pistis, and they have slightly different meanings. They're going to be very close at some places, but they're distinct the first word pistos is the one we have here and that has as its primary meaning uh being faithful or reliable or trustworthy it's not talking about the act of believing or trusting in something which is the way the verb is used over 85 times in in the gospel of uh, of john so we have this this uh, participial phrase here who through him believe in and that that um, in word really means the direction of our faith what are we what's the object of our faith what's the direction of our it's a directional preposition there so through him is Jesus through him we believe in God that is not the salvific uh, condition. That is not the sal- salvific position. We believe in Christ's death on the cross. So he can't be talking about phase one. So just to remind you, we talk about these three phases of salvation. Phase one takes place in an instant in time, and this is when we put our faith in Christ and we trust in him that he died on the cross for our sins. And the instant we believe that, we are Where we receive the imputation of Christ's righteousness. We are made a new creature in Christ. We're born again. We're regenerate, and we are given eternal life. All those things happen simultaneously, and that happens in a microsecond. Following that new birth, we have to grow. Just like the birth of a baby, the baby has to grow, and the baby grows because he's nourished. How is a baby nourished? He is nourished through milk. And we're going to get into this in just a few verses when we get into 1 Peter 2.2. 2. As newborn babes, you are to desire the pure milk of the Word. Okay? So that's talking about spiritual growth. But spiritual growth is very different from spiritual birth, just like human physical birth is different from physical growth. One precedes the other. Now, in, in the spiritual life, we are to be faithful toward God. Now, that's the issue in First Peter, because all through this, it's, Peter is talking about how the believer is to handle difficulty, opposition, persecution, meeting fiery trials, suffering, all of these things. We're not to uh, fade out. We're not to quit. We're not to give up. We are to continue to trust the Lord and continue to grow and mature. We're to be faithful. That's the meaning here of pistos. It is distinct from justification. It is experiential sanctification. So when we look at this chart, we see that the word pistos is that first believe, but pistis is the second. Pistis is down at the end when it says uh, we are to, to be faithful in or toward God. Let, before I get on to pistis, see, that's this phrase here, aith theon. Ace is the preposition. Theon is the noun for God, and it indicates, the preposition ace indicates motion to or towards something, the direction toward which you are, you are uh, expressing your faith, so that we have a parallel here in Acts 20:21. 20, in Acts 20:21, 20, Paul says, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, ignore the terms repent and faith. What we're looking at is the prep- how the prepositional phrase is translated. It's translated toward God, because ace plus the accusative indicates directionality. What is the direction or object of that, of that verbal action? So we look at this as through him, <coughs> through Christ, we are faithful to, toward God. That is the spiritual life. That is sanctification. And then God's identified as the one who raised him from the dead. And what we'll see, the reason that's important is all through the epistle, when Peter starts encouraging believers to hang in there in the midst of suffering, his model for that is what Christ did in the midst of his unjustified suffering. That he was obedient to the Father, he submitted to the Father's will, he did not deserve to be arrested, he did not deserve to be beaten, he did not deserve to go to the cross, but he kept his mouth shut and he fulfilled the Father's plan and the Father's will. So uh, God the Father is identified as the one who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. Because that goes back to what we find in the first part of in the introduction to First Peter, that if we endure the, the the trials of suffering, then that leads to further glorification in phase three when we are absent from the body and face to face with the Lord. So, Peter says, God is the one who raised him from the dead, gave him glory, so that with the result, now that result. Is tied not to the uh, intermediate uh, relative clause there, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, but to the first part. So take out that uh, appositional relative clause there, and it would read: Who through him are faithful toward God, so that your faith, pistis, and hope are toward God. Now that can't, that faith there cannot be phase one faith because God is not the object of our faith in phase one justification. This is phase two faith rest drill. So uh, through him, we're faithful toward God so that our faith, that is our act of believing and trusting him, mixing faith with the promises of God and our hope that is our confident expectation that all things will work together for good. And even though now we're going through suffering for a time, God ultimately is going to work it all together for good. And we will understand and that, God, that God's will is vindicated once we get face-to-face with the Lord so that our faith and our hope are directed toward God. Okay? So that helps us to get through verse 21. The glory reminds us that suffering in the present time is nothing compared to the glory to come. We have to understand the end game. We have to live today in light of eternity so that no matter what we're going through right now, just as Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before Him. It didn't mean the cross was joyful. It meant that He endured the the suffering on the cross because of the end results and the end game. So Peter talks in verse, uh, verses six and seven of the first chapter that were grieved by various trials, uh, their tests of fire, uh, that ultimately they are found to the praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's at the rapture. First uh, Peter one eight. Uh, we have joy now because we're looking forward to that future glory. So the faith and hope that we have here in verse 21, the faith refers to the faith rest drill, the post-salvation or after salvation trust in God when we're mixing our faith with the promises of God. Uh, that's that's spiritual growth. The hope summarizes, summarizes the adolescent stage of our confident expectation uh, in terms of our personal sense of destiny. So this is this takes us up through the end of verse 21. Now there's a break. Now verse 21, remember, is a continuation of a long sentence that began in verse 17, and the command there was to conduct yourselves through the time of your stay here uh, in fear. Everything from verse 18 down to verse 21 is related to understanding and implementing that command. We do it because we understand our redemption, what it costs the Father to redeem us, and that this is grounded in in the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's through him that we are faithful toward God and that we will uh, have our faith and hope uh, directed toward him. Now we're going to shift gears again. We go to a new sentence and a new paragraph, and this is in verse 22. And verse 22 extends in one sentence down through verse 25 and contains in the midst of it a quotation from the Old Testament from Isaiah chapter uh, Isaiah chapter 40, uh, verses 6 and 7, verses that you've heard me uh, quote uh, numerous times. So we have to look at this, and it starts in verse 22 and 23. That's before we get to the quote. So I'm just, I want to read this, and then we'll start working our way through this. Uh, Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. And then he talks about the, the, the word of God and the nature of the word of God in the quote from Isaiah 40 and his concluding statement at the end of verse 25. Now, what's interesting here is we get into the next compa- command. This whole section has to be understood in terms of these commands. And these commands are all going to be related to understanding the spiritual life. So let me review this Every now and then, I talk about the spiritual skills, and we've got new people around who don't know what they are, so this is a good time to quickly review them. Based on studies I did in First John many years ago, John in First John talks about three groups of believers, the, the children, the the young men, and the fathers. Those correspond to three basic stages of growth. Just as we do today, we talk about children, we talk about adolescents, and we talk about adults. And those are those three categories, the children, the, the, the young men, and, and then the fathers. So when we look at these spiritual skills, we have five that lay the foundation. Everything else grows on that. Now this is an induction and a summarization of basic things that are taught in the Scripture. Sometimes people say, well, where do you get that? Well, you get that from reading through the Scripture over a period of time, just just condensing it and summarizing it into these, these basic categories. Whenever we sin, we stop walking by the Spirit and we start walking according to the flesh. And so this is fundamental. The first way to address any issue in life is to make sure we're walking by the Spirit. Uh, and all of the other terms that are somewhat related to it, abiding in Christ, being filled by means of the Spirit, we're filled by His Word, walking in the light, walking in the truth, all of those are foundational. And when we sin, we're no longer doing those things. So to do it right, we've got to make sure we get back in fellowship, and that's through 1 John one nine. we confess sin. Then we continue by walking by the Spirit. And when we walk by the Spirit, the Spirit fills us, with the Word of God, and produces fruit in our life. So that's foundational to understand that the Christian life is spiritually empowered. And you may not realize this, but there's a whole lot of Christians who don't have a clue about this. On the one hand, you have people who are influenced by the holiness charismatic movement who have a really distorted view of, of pneumatology. When I was in Israel on this last trip, we went to a charismatic church and we experienced the wonders of contemporary uh, worship. And I used to think contemporary Christian music was bad. I would gladly trade the contemporary Christian music of the 1980s for the cr- contemporary Christian music of of now because it's, it was at least attempted to be biblical but it was part of that transition to desensitize people to how the culture was impacting our understanding of music. And so, but what this thread that ran through all these different choruses they sang were all about calling on the Holy Spirit to come, uh, calling upon God to change me, not you know, apart from the Word. It's like just God's just going to zap them and change them. So it's a failure to understand uh, divine institution number one, personal responsibility, a failure to understand that God the Holy Spirit is already there. He indwells every single believer in the church age, and God the Holy Spirit is always working in our life to either produce growth or to get us back in fellowship so he can produce growth. So we've got to walk by the Spirit. If we don't have a biblical understanding of pneumatology, we're just dead in the water. Then the next three really go together. They interact together. Faith rest drill is when we mix our faith with the doctrine of Scripture, where we're trusting what the Scripture says. But the process of that is understanding what the Scripture says, and that's doctrinal orientation. But in the midst of all that, we have to understand, as we're trusting God, that God is going to take care of us on the basis of His grace. So these three things correlate. They're, they're three things that are interdependent. They're distinct skills, and one, we're trusting in the Word. And another, we are trusting in God to deal with us in grace, and we have to understand that it's not because of who and what we are, but who and what God is. And then in the other one, it's based upon our understanding of God's Word. If we misunderstand God's Word, then we're going to misapply God's Word. And so we have to be oriented to what the Word of God actually teaches. So this is foundational to everything else that we see emphasized in the Scripture. Now, in spiritual adolescence just like in your and my growth, we have to move from being self-absorbed to thinking about others. We have to move from living today in light of the next minute and immediate self-gratification to moving to thinking about, well, how are my thoughts and actions going to impact tomorrow or next week or next year or into eternity? And we begin to think not, not just in terms of what's happening immediately, but what the long-term consequences are. And this is what I call personal sense of our eternal destiny. We're living today in light of eternity. The biblical word that summarizes that is hope. The biblical word that summarizes the first five is faith. We're learning to walk by means of faith and by means of the Holy Spirit. Now, in this second stage of spiritual adolescence, we're learning to live today in light of what God's doing in our life, where he's taking us. And that's hope. It's a confident expectation of the future related to the judgment seat of Christ, related to our future position of rewards and responsibilities uh, in the kingdom. And as we move through spiritual adolescence, then we begin to truly understand who God is, and how we are to love one another. It's not that we don't have some sense of our personal sense of uh, personal sense of our eternal destiny when we're when we're young younger spiritually, but we don't really begin to maximize it and capitalize on it till we reach a certain you know, a certain time frame within our spiritual growth. The same thing with love for God. Uh, your children. Many of you have had children. Your children look at you when they can begin to speak and they're two or two and a half years old and they say, I love you, mommy. But then when they're 40 years old and they say, I love you, mommy, it means something very different because it's not just uh, just that the thinking of a young child. It's, it's not a child's love. It's a love of somebody who's who's intelligent. You've got a long-term relationship with somebody who's matured. And it means something that's much richer and much more in-depth. So when we talk about uh, personal love for God, impersonal love for all mankind, and occupation with Christ, these three all also go together like faith, rest, drill, grace, orientation, and doctrinal orientation. When we look at those, those all interrelate. It's not that as a baby you don't have a measure of love for others or a measure of love for God, but it's not reaching that mature, full level that it does as you as you grow and mature. So the personal love for God comes first because it is that love for God based on an understanding of who God is and what he's done for us that becomes the basis for being able to love others, love those we don't like, uh, love those we don't know. That's why we call it impersonal because we don't necessarily know them. They're the the, the the person on the customer service line, they're the checkout person, they're the idiot that's driving in front of us on the highway. Uh, everybody, I mean, today I was out and I thought everybody had a, had a bad case of the idiots uh, <laughs> everywhere. And they all kept getting in front of me. I know that's never happened to y'all, but it happens to me occasionally. It's got to be dealing with the world system. And then the crowning thing, based on James 1, 2 is that personal happiness. Now, I derive this exegetically from looking at at James. James says, count it all joy. That's the first command in James 1, 2. Count it all joy, my brethren. Now, if you understand James, James then tells you in the rest of the epistle how to get to the point where you can count it all joy. So you have all these other spiritual skills laid out in James. And if you do them all, then you're able to count it joy. You understand those spiritual dimensions. So uh, this is really the spiritual skill where we're, uh, we're counting it all joy when we encounter various various trials. That's a very quick flyover of these ten spiritual skills, how they work together, how they develop. If you want to know more information about that, then you go back and you listen to my First John series, you listen to the James series, and to some degree you listen to the Hebrew series, and all of this is fully developed in those series so this is important because as we get into this section from 22 to 25 what's the main command love one another we're gonna that's the prime directive for the christian life we're to love one another well that's that's a more mature spiritual skill impersonal love for all mankind uh we're to love one another so let's see how this fits because this this is a fun little section but it's not talking about what you think it's talking about based on the english and 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 just first glance when peter starts he says since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit in sincere love of the brethren love one another fervently with a pure heart now if you've been around good Bible teaching for any length of time, you understand that these words purification and cleansing are sometimes interchanged. And cleansing, of course, whenever you think of cleansing, what verse should come to your mind? First John 1 9. Okay, but 1 John 1 9 is related to how you grow in terms of phase two. You have to confess your sin. It's not related to phase one. But it could fit. Since you've purified your soul, since you've gotten in fellowship by obeying the truth, 1 John 1, 9, through the Spirit, we're walking by the Spirit, and and sincere love of the brethren, love of the brethren is um, the fruit of the Spirit. It's the first fruit of the Spirit mentioned, Galatians 5, 22. It could mean that. Ah, but does it? So you can't get this in the English. You have to look at what the Greek says, and that's what, what gets us into, uh, you know, looking at this verse and saying, well, on the one hand, it looks like it may mean one thing, but on the other hand, it may mean something else and probably uh, probably does. So the first thing we ought to note is this word that's translated purified. It is the word agnizo. But grammatically, it's a perfect tense verb. Now, I know when I talk about grammar, some people just immediately glaze over. And why do we have to talk about grammar? Because God obviously uses grammar to communicate truth. This is a perfect active participle. Now, perfect tense, whether it's dealing with a participle or a finite verb, means it has the same connotation. It's talking about completed action action that is over and done with, and you're, you're either talking about, you're either emphasizing the completedness of the past action, or you're emphasizing the present results of a completed past action. And this is probably that second category emphasizing the present results. You are purified, but it's because of some action that happened in the indefinite past, with results that continue on into the future. So that can't be talking about phase two. Because in phase two, you're constantly being cleansed. This is talking about an action that's completed. It's not in process. It's completed in past time. So we have to understand... Uh, A little bit more about this, but we will get there. But this is talking about past completed action. But it's a participle. Now, a participle always is related to, or certain kinds of participles, are always related to a main verb. Now, the main verb in this section is love one another. It's the command. It's an, interestingly enough, it's an aorist active imperative to love one another. Now, there's a participle here at the beginning, and that participle is telling us something about loving one another. But because it's a perfect tense, and the verb is an aorist tense, it means the action of the participle precedes the action of the main verb. So you have past, present, and future tenses. In terms of the main verb, a past tense or perfect tense in the participle means the action of the participle precedes the action of the verb, whatever the verb tense is. If the participle is in a present tense, then the action of the participle happens at the same time as the action of the main verb. If the participle is in a future tense, then the action of the participle comes after the action of the main verb. So here we have a perfect tense participle which means the action of purification takes place and is completed before the main verb is engaged and the main verb is to love one another. So it's talking again about going to relate to phase one. So let's connect this back to the context. We've got four of these commands. That's how. If I were to outline this, that's how I would outline. Everything revolves around these four commands: to rest our hope fully on the grace brought to you through uh, so, sober thinking, First Peter 1 Peter thirteen through fourteen. The second command was to be holy as I am holy. To set yourself apart to the service of God in every area of your lifestyle. That's First Peter one fifteen through sixteen. The third was the section we just looked at and reviewed to conduct ourselves in fearful respect of god that's first peter one seventeen to twenty one and then this last section twenty two to twenty five all relates to this command to love one another. Everything is said here is going to help us understand what it means biblically and why we are to love one another. so we have these two the, the these two participles. Surrounding command. The first participle is the one that I have already mentioned to you. And the second one, probably didn't get this slide in the right order, is going to be mentioned in... I really got it out of order. Verse 23 because you have been born again. So he's saying in verse 22, since you've purified your souls, when did that happen? It's perfect tense. So it happened when you were saved, positional ju- uh, sanctification. And then he finishes it having, because you have been born again. That takes us right back to phase one. So The beginning of verse 22 and the beginning of verse 23, those two participles surround the love one another, and they're both based on the reason of uh, 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 the fact that you've been regenerated and you were purified when you trusted in Christ as your Savior. So now let's go back to the slide uh, where I was just, just focusing. Okay, so when we look back at... 122, because you have purified your souls by obeying the truth. So what truth was it that you obeyed to purify your soul? You responded to the command, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ that you might be saved. Now the command, this is just a little side note here. The command there is to believe. It's an Uh, it's an active voice verb, and it means that you are to respond by believing. Now, it's an imperative. Now, an imperative is called a volitional mood. It's addressed to your volition. Now, there are people within the free grace movement, you need to pay attention to this, who are trying to say that belief is not active, it is not volitional. I don't understand this. I think what they're reacting to is a certain number of evangelicals who say, if you don't know when you decided to believe in Jesus, maybe you're not saved. You've got to know when you made that decision. But I'm not sure that's really what they're saying. But this is a problem. But you've got the counter to this is you've got commands to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, which is addressed to your volition. And it's an active voice. You do it. So there's only two options. Either you do it or you don't do it. It's not something that's passive. It's not something you're just passive to. You're passive to being saved, but you're not passive to belief. And I think that opens the door to problems with uh, Calvinism, but that gets into a totally different area. So we obey the truth. That is the truth of the gospel. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. And it's through the Spirit. So he's saying, because you have already been purified by obeying the truth through the Spirit, uh, in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. So that starts us down this particular road, and it tells us that that this command again is to love love one another. It is done through the Spirit. So this is the role of God the Holy Spirit, that it's not by Titus 3.5, it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of the Holy Spirit and, and washing of regeneration renewal of the Holy Spirit. All that ties together. Now the idea there is that uh, we have this idea of, of sanctification. We're going to get into this as we go forward, but how are we sanctified? We're sanctified by your truth. Your word is truth. That's the word hagiadzo. So that relates to phase two growth. See, what we have to figure out here, I've already told you what the conclusion is, but we still need to document this a little more, is, is this purification of your souls phase one or phase two? It's phase one. It's obeying through the Spirit. And then he brings in again the idea of the Word of God in verse 23 and illustrates in verses 24 and 25. That's how we're sanctified. This is what Jesus prays in John 17, 17 for believers, sanctify them by your truth, thy word is truth. So that's post-salvation sanctification. It's reiterated a couple of verses later in John 17, 19, for their sakes I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. We see it even in the Old Testament. How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. Psalm 119.11, your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. See, all of this could fit for talking about post-salvation sanctification, but it doesn't fit with that perfect tense participle. Another passage that deals with uh but this one deals with uh positional sanctification. This is in Acts chapter fifteen, which is known as the Jerusalem conference Jerusalem Council and Peter is reiterating what has happened when he took the gospel to the to the Gentiles to Cornelius and the others and they're start, the apostles are starting to argue about this because it's the first time that Gentiles have been included equally along with Jews. And so they began to dispute, and then Peter stands up, and he says in the middle of verse 7, Men and brethren, you know what a good while ago God chose among us, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Now, just as a side note, what is necessary in Peter's statement in order to be justified? You heard the word and you believed. It doesn't say they heard the word and they believed and were baptized. It doesn't say they believed and were obedient. It it doesn't say any add anything to it. It just belief. It doesn't say commit. It doesn't say any of these other things. It doesn't say invite Jesus into your life or invite Jesus into your heart. It doesn't ask you to invite Jesus anywhere. It just says to believe. And then he says, So God who knows the heart, acknowledge them by giving them the Holy Spirit. That happened immediately at faith alone in Christ alone, just as he did to us, and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. This is phase one. They are cleansed positionally at the instant of faith alone in Christ alone. So that that shows that these terms are used for both phase one and phase two. When we look at this, the question is, is this purification phase one or phase two? And even this word agnizo is used in experiential cleansing in phase two. We'll come back to these verses in a minute. James 4, 8 says, draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. Now, in the parallelism there, the word cleanse is katharizo. That's the word we have in 1 John. And it's hognizo in, in terms of purify. So those are parallel. Those are synonyms. Those are interchangeable. In 1 John three three, John says, And everyone who has his hope in him purifies himself. So that's that same word. So in both of those passages, hognizo is used in terms of phase two. The point I'm making is going back to that jigsaw puzzle picture is that these are those pieces that look like they could fit in either one, and they're used both ways. You have to decide on the basis of context which one it is. And verse 23 comes along, gives you this further qualification, because you have been born again, that's the reason you are to love one another because you've been born again, because you have purified yourself. So purifying yourself at the beginning of 22 and because you've been born again in in 23 uh, are both perfect participles. They connect together. So that tells us on the basis of uh, grammatical analysis that these terms have to be talking about the same time When a person is first justified, what happens at the instant of faith alone in Christ alone? Now, this word hognizo is pretty interesting. Before we get, we've we've gone a little bit far afield looking at the context already because we have to understand the, the context and look at all these different details. But it's used, as I said already, it's used both ways. It's used for ritual in the Old Testament that had to do with purifying those who were already saved. So we have passages like Exodus 19.10. This occurs right before they, they are to receive the Ten Commandments. So are, are the three and a half million Jews at the foot of Mount Sinai already justified? Scripture says, yeah, very clear. They, they believed God at the Red Sea. They believed God at, at the original Passover. They're already saved. They're already justified, but now they have to go and consecrate, purify. It's it, the translation into the uh, Greek New Testament, Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint is is the word Hognizo. Joshua three five. You know, this is the conquest generation. Before they go to battle against Jericho, they have to, and they go into the Promised Land. They've got to sanctify themselves. Okay, it, that's that's post salvation. Acts twenty one. Paul, who's already saved, the next day goes into the temple. He purifies himself. That's that's also ritual purification post-salvation. So you have all these verses, James 4, 8, and 1 John 3, 3, we just talked about who are talking about this, this post, that, that these can all be experiential. But it's that fact that it's a perfect tense makes it, Talking, the purification is what happens at salvation. So then, what happens? Then what he says is because you've purified your soul, phase one at at justification by obeying the truth. That's the truth of the gospel. Uh, in sincere love of the brethren, which modifies the command, love one another. We could rephrase that: love one another in sincere love of the brethren. The love is supposed to be a sincere love. Now, this command to love one another is one that is repeated numerous times in the New Testament. It's grounded upon what Jesus says in the upper room. After they have their Seder meal, after he kicks Judas out to go betray him, then once he's cleansed, he begins to talk to the disciples. He says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you. They're to love one another. This isn't like the Old Testament commandment in Leviticus 18, 19 that says, love your neighbor as yourself. Your neighbor may not be a believer. And the standard is by, of comparison is to love your neighbor like you love yourself. Here, we're not to love anybody like we love ourselves. We're to love one another as Christ loved us. That's a whole new standard. We're to love one another as Christ loved us. He goes in John 15, 12. He repeats it again. This is when they've left the upper room. They're now on their way to Gethsemane. He said, this is my commandment. You love one another as I have loved you. John 15, 17. These things I command you that you love one another. Over and over again, this is repeated. First John 4, 9 uses the same term brotherly love, Philadelphia. But concerned brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. This is the command that distinguishes the growing, maturing disciple who's a student of Christ uh, and as a disciple of Christ. By this, all men will know you are my disciples, Jesus said. It's called a sincere love. That's this first word in the box in the Greek, anu uh, pakritos. It's the preposition ana at the beginning, attached to the word "hupocritos," which is where we get our word hypocrite. It's not a hypocritical or two-faced love. It is free from pretense or deceit. It's a sincere love, and we're to love fervently. That's the word ektenos, which means constantly. It's a steadfast, consistent love. Uh, it's fervent as the idea of passion. That's not in the dictionary meaning of the word ektenos. It's constant. It's, it's not going to waver. And it's with a pure heart. That's one that's been cleansed. katharos, the noun form of the verb katharizo. So with that, we've laid down the basis of this new command. And next time, we're going to come back and see the relationship of the Word of God in bringing about this transformation and how that fits, uh, both in terms of the quotation here in 1 Peter, but also how it fits coming out of Isaiah 40. A lot of you've memorized over the years Isaiah 40:31, they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. That's at the end of the chapter. This quotation, Isaiah 47 and 8, comes at the beginning of the chapter. What's that chapter all about? We'll look at that next time. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to be reminded that you are working in our lives to transform us. It's grounded in the redemption of Christ on the cross. It's grounded in the um, regeneration that we experience at salvation, which purifies our souls. And those two events imply a mode of operation that should show the transformation in our lives. We are to conduct ourselves in fear because we have been redeemed with incorruptible things, and we are to love one another because we have been purified and born again. Father, we pray that you'd help us to understand these things and challenge us with this. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.